0: there is hope for us yet we are
1: young we
0: are aware i am holly whittaker no
1: and i am no laura mccowan and this is, is home, home, home is podcast so whoa what did the you definition. hear your podcast? It went home, a home, home, a home, home podcast. No, but I really hope that it picked it up. That's what happened. Me too. <laughs> That's so awesome.
0: It's like that one time we couldn't make. And that when that up. I said, "Try." Right. I know. It's like that one time when I was when I said I was when I was cooking eggs, and we were on that call with you and Megan, and it was like eggs, 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 <laughs> eggs, eggs. <laughs> eggs. <laughs> that was awesome. That was great. <laughs> and Megan and I now just Adam, go eggs, Could you just Igs.
1: make that happen, please? Thanks.
0: Um. So, so well, hey. we are actually for the first time, and I think our lives, recording the intro right after we recorded the podcast, and this is great because it just keeps it really fresh. Um,
1: fresh, fresh, fresh in one way, not so fresh in another way. Because yeah, by the time this comes out; it will be a couple of weeks, and who knows? We might like. Not even oh, no. remember. It's yeah, by the time you guys are listening to
0: this, like, I'll probably be married. um, uh, Probably. Or potentially mm, probably. have had sex three times in 2017. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so... <laughs> on your new couch. <laughs> on my new couch. um, Yeah, my couch is still new. I just got it yesterday. It's like, can we talk about that couch? Okay, first of all, it took restoration hardware five days to get it here. Um, Yeah. It again, looks great.
1: Is it... It looks like I like it because it's really deep, which I like. The reason I like my couch is it too squishy. No, does it support you?
0: Yeah, it supports me. Um, it's very supportive, uh, very, very kind and emotionally like centered. And um, no, it's. I mean, it's yeah, it's. I mean, absolutely available. I had a friend over last night. We sat on on either end, and it was so like it was. It is like a very inviting comfortable couch it's not too big it's not too soft um i sat on it until 10 last night
1: you're describing a man i mean
0: that's what you're describing it's a relationship um it well i mean this is like a big deal i haven't had um I, i hated my green velvet couch i had it for years i never sat on it it looks
1: good, but, um, the couch yeah.
0: I had before that I literally used it was a pull out bed slash couch, and I set myself up in an apartment where I had no furniture except for a couch that pulled out into bed and I remember one night I brought a bartender home and <laughs> who I had been like stalking for weeks, and we woke up mm. in the or like maybe it was like I don't remember at some point he just looked around my apartment and I pulled out my bed so we could fuck on it and he said. Um, this is your bed and this is your whole apartment. And I said, yeah. And he said, I thought you were successful. He did not. (laughs) Yeah, he did. I mean, like I had been going, it was, where was he? He was a bartender at like a, a hate and, um, like a lower hate bar. I can't remember which one. Um, oh my God. I love that. I forgot the name of the bar I used to hang out with.
1: Um, but we used to call him,
0: um, his name was Dan and he looked like, um, uh, Dave Grohl, and so we called him Dan Grohl, mm. and, um, mm-hmm. he was really hot, and, um, he just, like, knew about me and my job, you know what I, and so, but, and my apartment was, I mean, this is, like, why, like, sobriety is so yeah. amazing, because I, don't live there anymore. I am not a 30-something-year-old uh-huh. woman that makes, you know, over six figures a year who has to sleep on a pull-out bed
1: because her life is such a fucking mess. And, um, it's such a funny thing to say, though. It's not funny. It's actually super mean. But, like, I thought you were successful.
0: No, I said I am. <laughs> uh, but I drink I said it, I,
1: all. I said, Smoke it well, all. I just said
0: I work all the time. And I said I don't give a yeah. fuck. I sleep on a pull-out. So what? Um. <laughs>
1: deep inside i give many many fucks
0: i gave so many fucks about that he never like get on my my couch (laughs) bed and fuck me (laughs) Uh, uh. (laughs) now take me here on the spring-loaded mattress (laughs) no but it's so funny that couch that was the couch i had before the green velvet couch that i threw the fuck away um and i used to smoke pot on it and then i would lose pot
1: yeah, yeah. Pot,
0: like we were just—I was having this conversation the other night with this guy who's like, pot isn't addictive, and I used yeah. to actually—I tore, I took a. Uh, a razor blade and tore into the couch into the sides of the couch to see if pot had somehow fallen through the cracks and into yeah. the interior side of the couch. So it's totally not addictive at all. I mean that's not It's not addictive not, at
1: all. I mean, no, I mean I didn't hope that's that exact normal same behavior with okay. <laughs> cocaine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> i didn't destroy my <laughs> furniture <laughs> trying to get <laughs> Dr- something a I would scrap do for of about
0: drugs. It. <laughs> 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 or a banana. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna yeah, rip this yeah. couch open and find that fucking dried apricot. Um, <laughs> Hot. <clears throat> yeah. Not yeah. A totally. Uh. <laughs> so. So. Um. This is an interesting like this is an interesting episode, and I have to caveat this with um I this is a very frustrating interview um and i loved it because of that i don't agree with everything that maya says and i remember this like i read her book a while ago i re- i went back and reread parts of it but i remember when i was reading it it's one of these things and all of these things we talk about this at the end it's why you have to be able to open like to show up and listen to what people have to say and not throw them up, like not throw them out because of uh, like certain things you don't agree with um it's why like i don't agree with kelly brogan and what she talks about when it comes to alcohol and a lot of other things but she has some points within her work there are there are gems buried within a you know a very radical polarizing thing i don't expect people to agree with me wholly um and so this interview is one where like and we're going to caveat it before we go into it um two things that i think are important to caveat like one is there's discussion of aging out and of spontaneous of recovery, aging out of, of, uh, aging out of addiction and, and spontaneous recovery. Um, and this is something that I, uh, I don't like. I think this is something that happens, of course. Um, I also know people that just stop drinking without any help, um, but that struggle. And I also know people that, um, Wait to age out forever until they're like, say, thirty-two and fucking a guy named Dan that was a bartender on their pullout couch. Um, (laughs) you know, like people like that.
1: And cutting Um, into their couch with razor blades,
0: yeah, (laughs) to find a piece of pot. I'm gonna get out of it, right? Totally gonna grow out of it. No, but I think this is like it's something really important. Like, if you are listening to this, like, I love Annie Grace's book because it's so much. There's so much common sense in it. Um, if you're listening to this and you hear something about, like, it's one of these things I do want to earmuff because I think. It's a ridiculous idea to to like you know to to pin any of our hopes on just um, spontaneously not wanting to drink or use drugs if we are like habitually using them. Um, and so it's not it's a point that we didn't really dig into um, on this, and I, I think maybe we do it in a future episode. Um, but it is also something that I want to make sure, like Laura and I both heard, and like that we just didn't drill into it because there were other pieces that we were drilling into. Yeah,
1: and it wasn't the it wasn't the the point. She's yeah right. <clears throat>
0: And the other piece what was... What was the second one? Well, I think the conversation around moderation and around like the value system of pleasure and and wine bringing pleasure at the detriment of our health and that being the trade off and the only trade off and and I think there was some passivity mm-hmm. around the like I think that there was you know like even you know I I had mentioned something about alcohol and she said well everything in doses but there's a really smart thing from Alan Carr's book that talks about you know if you if you knew that um, if if you got the same like buzz off of cyanide would you just put little drops of cyanide in your drink like would you do that like it, it, the same idea right. kind of comes around this is that I I don't and I hold to this I don't see any value in alcohol I don't see any fucking value or return on alcohol um, I don't mm-hmm. think it's necessary um, I think it's an absolutely unnecessary thing and I think black and white thinking around it in this one case is an important thing and I do believe like you can read about moderation like Annie Grace actually just did a really great podcast on moderation um i like like there are it's not to say that it doesn't exist it's not to say that my mom isn't a moderate drinker um but i personally don't see any benefit in the in the consumption of alcohol it doesn't mean that i think that people that use alcohol are idiots or bad um or that it isn't up to the individual to determine you know like to determine what's right for them but i unequivocally state and will will till the day I die, that alcohol is not something that we need to figure out how to keep in our lives. It's just not. Yeah. And that's not the same as food. And that's not the same as money. I deal with like, I have like pulled myself out of, you know, pretty deep financial ruin. I don't have a black and white like relationship with money. I have had to renegotiate the way that I eat food and consume food. I don't have a black and white relationship with food. I do with alcohol because I can just cut it out and I don't have to fucking think about it. Um, and so I think like, when we're talking about this conversation, I think it's important to kind of understand this was a place in this conversation that we're coming into. Um, I don't feel like I articulated like my position incredibly well. I wanted to take a moment to just say like that, like that is my stance and will always and forever be my stance. It's black and white on alcohol. And we get into other stuff. We talk about antidepressants. I absolutely don't have a black and white stance on antidepressants. I think it's gray and I think it's up to the individual. And, um, as I think all things are. And now I'm just going off on a tangent. I'm going to shut the fuck up. Laura, what did you have to say?
1: <laughs> I don't even know. Um, yeah, I I think that those were two points. Um, and she, I mean, the, the big one was just saying that there's benefits to, you know, there's proven benefits to moderate drinking. And that's a message that I think is old, Um and you aptly pointed out that there's a lot of new research that ties directly um, to cancer. I mean,
0: directly, uh, right. to cancer, and, <laughs> and among other things
1: and that, that it just doesn't, you know, and we also have such a s- distorted sense of what moderate drinking really means. And also uh, she, you know, does a, a comparison um, to other things like mu- you know, things that alter our state like music and, and whatever. And it just, I didn't, Um, I wasn't in I wasn't down with with that. But I also she raised she's been doing this for a really long time. She's um, a lot of the things that she did talk about are smart and brilliant and things that we need to, to, you know, she pushes it. She pushes the envelope on a lot of thinking and she was doing it long before we ever started talking about it. And that's right. I appreciate for her for that. And for being willing to talk to us and in some cases debate and yeah. be willing to hear, um, other sides. You know, I also said after we got off the call, cause you and I always kind of do a, what'd you think? We, we, both loved it. And, you know, I also said like alcohol wasn't her thing either. And I, it's not been her primary area of focus. You know, she was addicted to, um, cocaine, coke and Heroine, heroin yeah. and yeah. And so she doesn't, you know, she's, I think, it, which is the point that we, I think, try to make is that alcohol, she, she makes this case that they're, that we're culture bound by so many of these things. And I think alcohol is, is where we are the most culture bound, you know, in terms Agreed. of what we believe about it and, um, mm. or don't believe or what we don't even question. That's more yeah. what it is that we don't really even question and so this conversation was really good for that and um i think and so overall, too. It was great yeah i think so too wonderful. i
0: think she's wonderful and i'm gonna make her my friend and we're I gonna talk a lot like more like fast talking debates
1: um uh <laughs> while you drink a lot of coffee and i i want to uh, watch it
0: no but i think you guys will appreciate this and i think it's just like i really hope that whenever you're listening to this stuff like and like we both know that we say things that you guys disagree with and that's so it's so healthy to say things that we disagree with and that we don't understand or we don't like i love that we can talk about so many different topics um and and i i never want to have a show where where it's just where we expect that everything we say is going to just completely jive with everybody i i love that we can have incredibly um complicated
1: conversations like this one Yes, that's a good way to put it, and that I think what I've learned, um, not just in in this, it, it, but in really anything, in certain relationships, in really kind of anything that I think I know about, or that I don't want to talk about, or that pushes me in a a way that is really uncomfortable. If if I hang in there for a minute longer, or you know, until the next day, or I, I just open to what another person is trying to say. Um, that's where all so much growth has been for me um, and, and you. And I think that's all we're asking people is just to keep talking, you know, like we're going to get it totally wrong. Um, and we have, um, but we keep talking and we keep asking, you know, and Maya has too. I mean, she, she loved it. I mean, we, there were times when you, you know, we were saying like, no, we don't agree with that. Nope. Nope. And she just hung right in there cause this yeah, is I what know. she does, you know? know? So it's, it's, it's really beautiful and it's healthy and it's, um, I appreciate it so much.
0: I agree. I do too. I really appreciated this. I'm excited about it. Um, I hope you guys enjoy it and, um, uh...
1: Yeah, There'll be a ton of resources, so check it
0: out. Yeah, a so will. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Here we go. Faces dressed up to the glow. Oh. All right. Hi, Maya. Is it, it's Maya. Maya. Life, yes, okay. And it's
2: all of it's Just ignore the first Z.
0: Yes. I can actually pronounce your last name very well.
2: Oh. <laughs> I've been practicing it. Been, you've probably been doing that your whole life. You're right. Yes. I, I spell my name multiple times a day. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on. I read your book. I think right when it first came out. Um, I have read, I think, almost every book on addiction at this point, and yours is one of a few books um, that, like Mark Lewis's work, that just uh, that. And I'll let you kind of explain this. There's there's a lot of there's so much meat in, in Unbroken Brain, um, and lots of stuff we want to talk about. But I think one of the first things that I'm really interested in exploring with you, and we've never had somebody come on that uh, that you know, didn't uh, that necessarily could. Explain the difference between like the choice model and the disease model and the learning model of addiction. But correct me if I'm wrong, you believe in in that that addiction is like pathological overlearning of something that our brains are are wired to do as it is. And can you can you yes. explain that and explain what the difference is between the models and and what the learning? Sure, sure, have. sure.
2: Well, first, thank you so much. I'm I'm really glad the book was um, useful. And so, yeah. So there are sort of three main ideas about what addiction is, and the most common one is that it's a bad choice or a sin or a moral weakness. And everybody's pretty much familiar with that. You're choosing mm-hmm. to do this. You're choosing to be a jerk, you're choosing to have all these horrible things happen to you and your family. Um, this is basically the idea that, you know, it's just, these are bad people. Um, the disease idea is that addiction is a chronic progressive brain disease that is caused by drugs damaging the brain um, and therefore um, kind of turning people into zombies who can't control their behavior the learning model is more subtle than these two. And, and I'm not really trying to create straw men out of them, but um, the moral model certainly deserves to be straw Um But the, uh, the, the learning model basically says that addiction is compulsive behavior despite negative consequences. And this is actually the definition that's agreed on by the disease people and it's the definition that the DSM diagnosis rests on and it's the definition that the National Institute on Drug Abuse uses. So this is a widely accepted definition. So when you think about how something like compulsive behavior despite negative consequences could occur, um, what you see is that a person ends up chasing a drug and they continue doing it even when everything goes terribly wrong. So where else can we see this kind of behavior? Well, in order to be able to uh, survive and reproduce, people need to be able to put up with a lot of stuff to be able to have a relationship, to be able to raise a child, to deal with all those diapers. You really need a system that makes you get pleasure from something and then persist to keep that happening. And right. so what, what happens in, in addiction is basically your, your brain has learned to love the wrong thing. And if you think about it, I mean, I think pretty much everybody has had a bad boyfriend or girlfriend that you're just like completely obsessed with and you know they're terrible for you and then you keep doing it anyway. We have no idea what you're talking about. Right. That's <laughs> such a rare, aberrant experience. Nobody has ever had that. Right. <laughs> um, so, so you know, I mean, it, and this is exactly what happens with drugs. And if you just look at um the, um, if you switch out the words in love songs for the names of drugs, um, (laughs) you will basically end up having drug songs that are completely accurate about addiction. And, you know, you even get things like love is the drug and, uh, you know, going to have to face that you're addicted to love if you're in a certain generation. Um, So, you know, it, this is what happens, and and this brings, um, I think, a lot of good news and a lot of sense into the field because once you see that basically it's not that your brain is damaged, but that you've learned something that is deeply embedded and problematic. On um, you know that's very different than having a chronic progressive disease. And good news for everybody with addiction: the data does not support the chronic progressive disease model because, frankly, it shows that about 50% of people um, with addictions with the exception of tobacco um, will no longer have those addictions by around age 35. Um, and most of them will stop without help. So if this were a you know, thing that was chronic and progressive, you just shouldn't see that. Um, and also if it was progressive, you should see that it gets harder and harder to stop as you get older when in fact the reverse is true the more you try to quit, the more likely you are to eventually succeed. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. older people you know, I mean, they're they're certainly due to fentanyl with opioids. Um, this is killing more people before they get the chance to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a disaster and it's a public policy disaster that uh, a lot of us want to try to mitigate and fix. And But we are just not using the tools that we have. Um, but, you know, if people, um, if we reduce harm and keep people alive, then the majority of them are going to be able to um, either moderate or stop their use. Um, and, you know, that's a really hopeful message. And I think that, you know, people in the field really need to hear it. All right.
1: Can I ask something? Because you said so many things in there that I want that I, <laughs> I know that Sorry, are amazing. <laughs> no, and uh, I want to ask about because I think it, it's worth it. So, okay, so the the data doesn't support that. Uh, I guess what I'm thinking about is why are there some people who? Because you said people get over their addictions by you know by the time they're 35 or they outgrow them. Does that mean that? Anyone who uses these substances to a certain degree, whatever they are—tobacco, alcohol, drugs, whatever—is um, is is technically addicted. And then they no, just sort no, of- no.
2: That does not mean this at all. What I'm talking about is epidemiological data from um, giant samples um, of people that would meet what was formerly called DSM substance dependence and okay. what is now called DSM opioid use disorder severe. Um, or not opioid, whatever the substance is, um, including alcohol. So um, the these are the people that outgrow it are not your casual drug user. I mean, so if we look at it this way, basically eighty to ninety percent of people who try substances um, never have addictions and never even have, you know, especially risky behavior around their substance use, um, and that includes heroin and opioids and cocaine and methamphetamine. This is not a recommendation to go out and try it. You wouldn't fly (laughs) on a plane that crashes, you know, one time out of five. Um, But, um, you know, it's it's just to say that exposure alone is not enough and that um, the people who, um, you know, compulsively use despite negative consequences will end up meeting criteria for what is now called opioid use disorder severe
1: or whatever substance, whatever Um, substance. Okay. Yes.
2: Um, and so, you know, the criteria are the same regardless of the substance. Um, and they involve, you know, using more than you intend and feeling like you've lost control, um, having consequences, um, like, you know, car accidents or losing your job or your family cutting you off or, um, you know, all of these kinds of things that are letting you know that your drug use is causing a problem. So the DSM used to have two categories, both of which were named terribly. So there was a category called substance abuse. And the abuse word should be dropped from our vocabulary because, you know, you abuse children and people, not drugs. (laughs) Um, And when you um, have that word associated with drugs, it makes them sound like everybody who abuses drugs is also abusing people so substance abuse this was formerly basically the diagnosis given to college binge drinkers they had drug use that was risky and dangerous um but most of them did not have these severe consequences loss of control all these other kinds of things that you see in what was formerly called drug dependence, which is a really stupid name also, and is now called um, uh, use disorder severe. Mm -hmm. Um, So the reason I'm saying that complex phrase is because DSM-5 changed it so that Mm -hmm. there's now three categories. There is um, substance use disorder mild, which would basically be where the college binge drinkers fit. Um, Mm -hmm. And then there's substance use disorder moderate, which nobody knows what to do with. And then there's substance use disorder severe, which is formerly the dependence diagnosis. And Mm -hmm. I want to digress here on dependence for a second, because it's really important for understanding the opioid epidemic. So basically, dependence is like needing a drug to function without withdrawal. And that may or may not be a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, If Mm -hmm. the substance you happen to need is Prozac and it's working for you, Uh, just take your Prozac, not a problem, right? If the substance you happen to need is an opioid and it's working for your pain, not a problem as long as the DEA doesn't take out your doctor. Um, So similarly, if you are using an opioid for um, treatment such as methadone or buprenorphine and you um, are taking it as prescribed and now you're functional and you've got your life back and all this, that's dependence, it's not addiction. Addiction requires compulsive use despite negative consequences. It doesn't have anything to do with whether or not you have withdrawal. And people confuse this all the time, mm-hmm. and it means it stigmatizes the people on medication, it stigmatizes pain patients, it stigmatizes babies who were wrongly called addicted because a baby cannot have compulsive drug use despite negative consequences since it doesn't even know how to talk.
0: All right. So what you're separating out, you're saying what you're separating out is addiction from dependence. And also what I hear is that dependence is a much smaller population, a much smaller village than addiction is.
2: Um, well, Not necessarily. Um, because like, if you think about it, there are millions of patients Mm. who are taking opioids for pain that have dependence and only a tiny group of them will ever have addiction. Um, and similarly, there's lots and lots of people on SSRIs, um, like Prozac or, you know, the other serotonin drugs. Um, those drugs, some of them, uh, can cause really nasty withdrawal, but nobody's calling those right.
0: Right. <laughs> so there's a lot
2: of friends right. out there, and, Right. And it's only a problem if you can't get a safe legal supply, or if the substance is harming you.
0: Right. But then, but but on the other hand, addiction is. It also can span. I mean, there are people I know that feel addicted to wine. Like there is a large population of people that feel addicted to wine, or and that that wouldn't necessarily. Um, I'm trying to kind of pull this apart because I we work with a lot of people that aren't comfortable with coming home and having a glass of wine a night, and it wouldn't necessarily fit into dependence. Like they wouldn't go through withdrawal if right. that
2: wine was removed. So those right, and those those people are probably in that mysterious substance use disorder moderate, moderate category. And, yeah. they're drinking as a um, they're drinking at levels that are probably bad for their liver, and that may be increasing their risk for various cancers but they aren't what you would formerly call alcoholics um, and they aren't um, alcohol use disorder, severe, which is basically mm. alcoholism. What they are is what we would call problem drinkers. Mm. Um, and, you know, again, like the thing about that that gets complicated is that, you know, this is highly culture bound, right? So if you have four or five drinks at dinner, you know, in France, it's probably, it's just as bad for your liver as it is here. But it's just not considered a problem the way it is here. Yeah,
0: but people in Italy and France aren't drinking four or five glasses of wine at dinner. Some They're having are. like –
2: Some are. But for the um, most now,
0: part, it's like it's a very – like I've, I've spent a lot of time in Italy and I've rarely seen anybody drink more than, than one or two drinks in a sitting. It's just – No, a, and I mean yeah. that's like, – that like I'm
2: saying, we're talking about pathologic, right. you know, potentially – uh, but what I'm just saying is that, like, in some cultures, it, you know, certainly it's not acceptable in, like, say, France or Italy to be drunk. Abs- physically right. Drunk. Right. Um, but um, you can certainly have, a you know, um, couples that go through more than one glass, of, more than one bottle of wine. Yeah. Um, and what I, what I just think is important to note there is that, you know, different people have different values. Some people may value the pleasure that they're getting from that over having their liver for as long as possible um and while that is not a choice most of us would make it you know if the people are willingly saying you know what this is more important i want to live a good Pleasure filled life, and I don't care so much about, you know, an extra 10 years or something, you know. This is so what I just think it's important to point out both the values of people and that we automatically assume that health should always be the first priority Um, and the cultural differences there.
0: I, uh, so on that point alone, so we're talking about this drinking wise. Do would you say that same thing about smoking? Would you say that same thing about heroin? Would you say that same thing about yeah, cocaine?
2: I think, huh. that, I think that I think we as a society have not come to terms with the fact that because we have this whole puritanical problem with unearned pleasure. Right. And <laughs> think that like it's automatically bad if somebody, you know, um has a binge that might, you know, put them at risk for something. Um and other people think, you know, well, I climb Mount Everest and that gives me, you know, it's now, I think, a 3% risk of dying. Um, but in the past, it used to be like one in three. And we think it's perfectly fine for people to take that risk, which, by the way, pre-fentanyl was a greater risk than shooting heroin for a year. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, it has to do with what we think it's okay to value, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. that makes Complicated. Now, I'm not saying like I'm not saying anything about people's values, like whatever people's values may be, they can vary tremendously. Um, but I am saying that in order to think about this um, in an intelligent way, we need to think about what choices people are allowed to make. And the risks versus benefits versus of those and whether, you know, sort of religious attitudes are creeping in there.
0: Right. And I think this is really important to state because I have I have so much and I know does too, so much on this. Like we're talking about like choice and freedom of choice, which I think is we haven't done historically done very well within this country regarding that, especially regarding you know consumption of, of drugs and alcohol yeah. and, and we, we have, you know, very few legal substances. We have, you know, a lot of illegal substances. We, and, and, and there's criminalization and, you know, the, yes. we have, we have a, um, a very punitive, uh, approach at, uh, and an controlling racist, like- and an extremely mm-hmm. racist. Thank you. Uh, an extremely racist and punitive approach in, in dealing with, with drugs and alcohol. And I think that's
2: really important because what, what people miss there is, Literally every single drug law except for the creation of the FDA was made during a racist panic. Oh, yeah. Um, marijuana oh, yeah. laws, yep. um, you know, I mean, there's like, you know, you look at the history of it, it's like, oh my God, satanic swing and people will have sex yeah. with black people and, yeah. you know, um, uh, <laughs> so. all of this kind of ridiculousness. Um. So you know, like, and then if you look at it with opium, oh my God! You know the Chinese, the China men. Are men.
0: Seduce- oh my God! Yeah,
2: it's. I right? just saw so then, it. Like, yeah. Sorry,
0: keep going, please.
2: Oh. Oh no. So I mean, so basically, even prohibition, um, of alcohol was associated with like Germans and
0: yeah, you know, and
2: it's so it's all about like the other and racism and and all this. So. What a lot of people assume is that somebody like some scientific panel sat down one day and said alcohol and tobacco should be legal and the other one should be illegal based on risk.
1: Mm. And oh, my God. Thank you for saying cannot,
2: that. Yeah. And so like that never happened. That needs to happen because we would make very different choices because basically the drugs that are legal are the favorites of white men in the 19th century um oh, the that Stop they right profit
0: there. off of but wait but hold there this is getting too far away from the question i was trying to ask cuz oh, i sure. want to go so far deep into this part right here but the the thing i was trying to say based on what you were just talking about is that there is a historical like a uh, historical patriarchal white supremacist um a puritanical rooted uh, attempt to control uh to control right through the legalization yes. and criminalization of certain substances and also certain behaviors you know there's criminalization yes. of of a lot of uh, uh, behaviors related to alcohol abuse and alcohol addiction right. even though it's legal and so there's that piece which I want to jump into but I think one of the things that you said that we focus so much on when you were talking at the beginning of this is that it's a value system and that's a choice between pleasure. And I preach pretty much like number one, personal freedom, personal choice. But the second thing that I preach is that a lot of freedom comes from actually facing our pain and actually not mm-hmm. using coping mechanisms to get through our, our life. And so I think it's also an important concept and I appreciate here what you have to say about this. Instead of just making it the binary, this is a choice between my liver and my health, And my pleasure, I think it's also without putting like taking off the puritanical forcing of of what we should and shouldn't do, like taking that off. There's also, I think, a very um, evolving and like um, what's the word I'm looking for, like higher conscience, a higher conscious uh, consciousness, like uh, coming from the ability to uh, find pleasure free from having to escape. And so I think that. Um, yes. Yeah, but I okay. mean, like,
2: so there's a difference there also, like we have to bracket like between addictive use, which no longer produces pleasure or even comfort um, and, you know, social use where you're not using to escape. You're just having a good time with your friends. Like that is a very different thing from when your only coping mechanism is escaping through substances. But isn't there a
0: difference between like, do like I've, I mean, this is like, this is what I, I talk about a lot and Laura and I talk about a lot, which is I don't feel like in order to, like, I feel like I've been sold an idea that in order to enjoy being with my friends, I have to have a glass of wine or I have to like consume some sort of toxic substance.
2: But it's also the case. It's also the case that, um, we can, um, you know, music is consciousness altering. Um, like, uh, dancing is consciousness altering. We think of these things as natural and drugs is like unnatural. Um, but it's a really porous boundary. And so like, this is not to say that like, we should accept sort of, you know, the capitalist thing that you cannot, um, you know, you must drink to, um, socialize. Right. Um, but it, Also to say we shouldn't go so far as to say that all drug pleasures are like fake and not um, uh, actually enjoyable or they're always escaping from feelings or stuff like that. Because that's not true either. There's a middle ground. It's basically the case that you can have all different sorts of pleasures. You can have the ones that are, you know, sort of authentic. And I worked really hard and like now I can deadlift whatever, you know. Um, And if you just had a shot that made that happen, it would feel like cheating, right? Right. Um so it I mean, this gets into deep questions about authenticity, feelings, um, you know, how um how we live, what we value, where hard work comes in, what about deserving it? I mean, this gets deeply philosophical, but I think it's, you know, again, there is definitely a thing where if a person cannot have a good time without drinking, there's a problem. um but there's also a thing where, all pleasures of drinking are just fake and not spiritual.
1: Yeah, I think the reason and I am following everything you're saying. I think I think I mean what we're specifically talking about is alcohol and I think the thing that you said about it being culture bound is so true because I think I think where the rub is, you know, not even a rub, where we where we're pushing this a little bit is that the cultural influence of alcohol is so um it's such a – it's so big. Yeah. It's as big as the culture
0: was with smoking 50 years ago.
1: The same, You know, that we don't even – by the time we're socially drinking, if we are, we don't even – so many of us are so past the point of even understanding that we're kind of making a choice. Like – that there is any other way, I guess, I guess I just feel like I I totally hear what you're saying and I'm so glad you're saying it. Um, but I also think that with alcohol, it's like this special arena where, where the cultural influence is so big. It's almost a foregone conclusion. Yeah, no. And I mean, I think, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting because, um, you know, a third of people in America do not
2: drink at all and not all of them are in AA. Like a lot of them are just like religious, you know. They don't drink at all for religious reasons, or because um, they can't
0: tolerate it. I have a lot of friends that are sober just because yeah. it makes them sick.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I mean, it's it's an interesting thing. And you know, like when we were talking about France and Italy before, like there are sort of two types of drinking cultures. There's a type that it's a food you drink with family, you don't get drunk, and and that's fine, which is like France and Italy. And then that that sort of southern drinking culture, but northern drinking culture is more like alcohol is a symbol of masculinity, and it is um, you know a special thing you do with the boys, and it is girls. not done with family, right? I mean, it uh, right. This has changed, but it this is sort of the original version of it, um, uh, yeah. and. It, it still has the uh, sort of masculine thing going on in terms of violence, you know. But it's seen as a, a sort of mystical substance that is not a food, um, and that is kind of, um, you know, it's either all good or all bad. Um, and and this is where we get a lot of our black and white thinking about it.
1: Yeah. So much. Hall, do you want? Do you want to? No, <laughs> I just. I mean, at, like it's. I,
0: There's so I there's so much I think like we could debate on this for hours because I also I think that again it comes down to personal choice, but I also think it comes down to informed consent. We don't have informed consent when we have people that are drinking alcohol in this country. Most people enter into this at a very young age, influenced by a culture that abuses it. And music, I get it, I get the reference, but music does not kill people. And this kills one in ten Americans in a certain age bracket. And like and we and Laura and I, our entire social circle is, you know, filled with people that we're just using wine to have a good night with their friends or we're just using it in certain ways but there's also the other factor in this which is that we have a country that is in deep and deep like becoming deeper and deeper entrenched in its own pain like our society our yeah. culture is in pain and we offer yeah. certain instruments as solutions to that pain instead of facing that pain including antidepressants like in not that antidepressants are bad but they're definitely overprescribed and including things like alcohol and it's just it's this we are we are a society that has to kind of understand why we use certain things, and I just don't know many people that use the like the one legal and promoted drug to just like there and they are they exist they're my mom, but even at that it is something that is a is a tool that is. That, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's ethanol. It's a poison. It's the same thing that we put in rockets. You know, it's not listening to music. It's actually taking something that makes people very sick. And so I think that there is – if we want to, like, level the playing field on talking about pleasure, then we also have to level the playing field on on, on making sure, you know, people have a very different understanding of, of what it is and, and how we use it. And, um, and we don't have that.
2: Sure. I mean, I, I, think, I think that's right. But the dose makes the poison. Um, and you know, moderate drinking is associated with longer life. Now, there may be some serious confounding variables there, um, and this literature is still like highly debated. Um, but um, you know, I think you know anything. It's going to depend on how you use it. Um, and yes, our culture certainly is in pain, and we are seeing you know, people who are drinking seriously, unhealthily, people who are running away from the pain. Um, You know, I mean, we have a hugely unequal society and inequality creates massive, um, you know, increases addiction risk, increases obesity risk, increases all sorts of stresses that make it really difficult for people to connect with each other. And when you can't connect with each other, you can't like heal each other. Right. Right.
0: Right. And I think one, one last thing, this, the studies, there's far more studies that are coming out about the links between cancer and drinking and the studies that like show longevity are like historically have been done on a subset of men um, and cardiovascular health. I mean, there's just like, there's no, there is no really good true science about um, like that shows and proves that drinking is improves health. I mean, it, but at the same point, like it's, you know, there's there's not been enough studies that really show the link between you know the detrimental effects. They're coming out, but they're also they don't make the rounds as much as something that says you know alcohol is great. Anyway, um, why don't we move? Why don't we move forward? Um, Laura, do you want to do you want to jump in, or do you want me to ask the next question?
1: Well, I'll start. Okay. I have something. Okay. Um, sure. So, Maya, I loved in it was I think it's your New York Times article that's uh, that's titled "Can You Get Over an Addiction." And you said you talk a lot about um, the models that you that you went through. But what you there's one quote in there where you said, moreover, if addiction resides in the parts of the brain involved in love, then recovery is more like getting over a breakup than it is face like facing a long a lifelong illness. And I loved that because that felt like my experience uh-huh. um, of recovering from this. And I don't know. Can you talk about that? Sure, sure. I mean, I, I really think you know, like, I mean, it's it's really
2: you know, once you look at the neuroscience here, it's really really clear that these are these areas that are deeply involved in like you know bonding, um, and you know this is why people use substances to you know uh, in ways that ideally will increase bonding, right? Um, but when you end up addicted, you end up you know loving the substance too much and being disconnected from the social connection that you need. And so when you have that breakup, um, you really have to deal with like all the same kinds of things. that, like, you know, when you break up with a boyfriend, like, oh, that song or that like restaurant Mm we used to go to. All the associations Mm -hmm. and the
1: emotions of
2: that yeah exactly and so all of that stuff like you know cues craving all this stuff it's exactly the same now in certain instances it may well be more intense related to drugs um it will vary from person to person um but i think the uh you know it's it's it really it it helps you understand that you know you've learned something in a system that really learns things well, because it's very important to biology and, yeah. uh, you know, but like over time, like you do like, you know, I mean, it's like those horrible bad exes we now actually think of as like horrible, bad exes instead of like, Oh boy, I wish I was still with him, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. Right.
1: <laughs> right. And it is. And I think I love that because for me it was an extremely emotional process Um, and also really, I mean, there isn't a part of my life that it didn't touch. And I think that's something that, I don't know. I like the way you said that because it creates a lot more empathy around what it would be like. Everyone can understand what it's like to go through a a severe heartbreak, right? No matter if you if you have experienced addiction or not, you understand that and how physically and emotionally and spiritually and psychically painful it can be. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So I don't know. I just wanted you to comment on that. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the, um, the other thing there is
2: when, you know, when you break up with somebody or, well, first of all, when you fall in love with somebody, your priorities change tremendously. Like, you've you changed your life to, like, center this person. You might have moved across the country. You might have, you know, had a child. You might have done all kinds of different things, right? Right. And similarly, when you're addicted, like, you are putting that in front of everything else. And, yeah, it's going to profoundly affect the rest of your life and your relationships. and, And, you know, I mean, all of us, I'm sure, have experienced where, you know, some one of our best friends like gets a new boyfriend and then we don't hear from them for a couple of months. Right. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, you know. yeah, like changes um, your center of gravity completely. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, this is, this is what happens.
2: Um, and yeah, I do think it, it also, right. It humanizes addiction, which is a deeply human thing. I mean, if you, you know, it's probably the case that if we weren't capable of addiction, we wouldn't be capable of the depths of love that we experience or, you know, the depths of parental love that we experience.
1: That's interesting to say. That <laughs> <It> is. <clears throat> I am. Um, yeah. And we can, we can, I want to, Holly has all these brilliant questions that I really want her to run through, but I think for me that, um, that idea is, is so um, important and, And yeah, I, I guess also just, um, the fact that your priorities change the thing. Another thing I loved you said was that to someone who doesn't have your priorities, your choices are going to look very confusing. (laughs) And that is, you know, obviously the experience of anyone who is watching someone that they love who's addicted or even, even a dependent, it just doesn't make sense. But anyway, Holly go. Your questions are much more um you've been much more no, involved I've, in her book and her work. So I wanna Yeah, I wanna no. Do them.
0: Okay. So I wanna kinda take through like what um if you can just maybe take us through what your experience of recovery was. Like what you were sure. Yeah. You've written about it, but I'd love to hear it from you.
2: Yeah, I mean, so basically, um I, you know, was addicted to cocaine and heroin, um and I was injecting insane amounts of drugs and um My life was absolutely in ruins, and I eventually realized that, you know, this is not helping me and and that I truly was addicted um, and ended up, you know, seeking help. Now, this was the um, late 80s, and really the only thing that was available was, you know, your 28-day, 12-step sort of rehab. And thankfully, I was able to, um, you know, get what I needed out of that at the time, Um, so I, you know, I was able to create a new social network. Um, I was able to, um, you know, make some repairs with my family. Um, I was able to go back to school. Um, I was able to clear up my legal problems, Hello, white privilege, um, and, um, you know, um, was, um, you know, I, I created a new life. Um, with the support, um, of other people in recovery. Um, and you know, as, as you know, from reading the book, um, there are certain things that I think are wrong about that approach as a treatment system. I think that 12 steps are absolutely wonderful as a system for people who want to engage in spiritual growth. Um, if it appeals to them, mm. you know, there's so many different to- Paths mm-hmm. for spirituality for everybody for many, many reasons. Um, but I certainly think it's a valid spiritual path for those who find it valid, basically, right. as you might think mm-hmm. any religion. Um, And, you know, but I just think that um, if we're going to see addiction as a medical problem, it can't be the only medical problem that we treat with meeting confession, prayer, and surrender to a higher power. Amen. Um, you know, and so I think we need to separate that out from treatment and not to say that you can't refer people and tell them, hey, if you connect with these people, this could be a great social network for you, um, and that the most important 12-step slogan is take what you like and leave the rest, um, uh, then, you know, um, we, I mean, the thing is also, the thing that enrages me about our current system is A, we're forcing people into this, which violates the First Amendment and their you know religious freedom, um, and B, we're paying for what you can get for free, Why are we doing that? Why are we wasting taxpayer and insurer money, which is very scarce in this area, paying for content you can get for free? We shouldn't be doing that. People in treatment should be getting cognitive behavioral therapy. They should be getting motivational enhancement therapy. They should be getting family therapy. They should be getting, you know, if it's opioids, you know, we have two treatments that cut the death rate in half. They need methadone or Suboxone and to stay on it um to reduce the risk in this horrible fentanyl-filled um environment. Um, you know, so um yeah, I could go on and on about the horrors of our treatment system, but um, you know, I, I have to um it's it's a very funny thing for me personally because the um you know you're expected to endorse whatever worked for you as the solution. Um and I do not feel that way and I also don't know, you know, I suspect if I had been given a completely different approach at that moment, pretty much anything would have worked because I was really desperate to get better. Mm. Um, And, you know, so it's like, you know, again, I would have needed some form of social support. I would have needed some way of understanding what happened to me. I would have needed some reconciliation and connection with my family. And I also would have needed antidepressants. Um, but, um, <laughs> yeah, I only discovered two, like two years later. Um, but you know, that, I mean, for me, that has made an enormous difference because, um, as I, as I write in the book, I had enormous problems with oversensitivity to sensory and emotional experience. And for me, the antidepressants turn down the volume on that enough that, um, I'm much more functional and much more pleasant to be around basically. Um, so, um, you know, that for me has been really important. And obviously like for some people, if your volume is turned down too low and you then take antidepressants and it makes it even lower, it might make you suicidal. So we wouldn't want you to be on antidepressants or those particular ones anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's, I mean, I think, you know, with all of these things, individual variation is huge um you know what works for one person in recovery might actually kill somebody else you know it mm. really needs to be profoundly individualized um you know, we recognize that you know. Um, In the autism world, we we know that, like, you know, there's a saying, like, if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. And -hmm. we need to apply that to the addictions area because there has been so much of an idea that everybody with addiction is the same. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if I stood up here and said, I speak for all white women around the world. People would laugh at me and say, Of course you don't. That's absurd. But if I stand up and say, I speak for all people with addiction, they'll be like, Yeah, you do. And no, I don't. (laughs) That's so good.
1: Yeah, that's so true. I've never heard that autism um, statement say it again. I'm sorry. I'm sure.
2: It's like if you've met one person with autism, you've met one
1: person with autism. Got it. Yeah. yeah.
2: But to, to complicate matters further, some autistic people prefer to be called autistic people rather than people with autism. So you have to be careful about that Yeah. Um, and ask people what their preference is basically. Um, but, um, you know, it's, I think I have been, um, I really, have been sensitized to the language issue in addiction because, you know, we talk about people with schizophrenia and people with autism and people with depression. And then we have addicts, junkies, druggies, Yep. like right. that stigma right there. And I feel like if, if we as people in recovery and, you know, even people who use drugs actively can just stand up and say, we are human. Like we do not mm-hmm. accept this dehumanizing language. Um, we are, you know, um, People that need to be reckoned with, um, we will get treated a lot better.
1: And (laughs) how do you? you, I mean, yeah, yeah.
0: (laughs) No, I mean, how do you... Did you ever call yourself an addict? Did you ever subscribe to that? Oh, yeah. I I mean,
2: you can look at the stuff I wrote. Like, I I wrote a piece um, for the Washington Post in in 1993 um, that I think was the first piece arguing that, you know, people with addiction need to come out of the closet and, like, um, you know, have our version of act up. Otherwise, we're never going to um, uh, be able to uh, get better policy. Um, And there's been a spate of recent pieces saying this, which I am very heartened to see. Um, but, um, I said, I'm an addict and that I used to go around. I'm sure if you can find that old Bill Moyers documentary that I was both a producer and a participant in, um, uh, I probably say that on there. Um, I really, you know, and, and I think actually, if you personally want to say I'm an addict and, and, and that is, the way you want to identify and how you feel and whatever, I am not going to stop you. I just don't want somebody from the outside, you know, just like with like all kind of bad language, like queer or the N word or whatever, if you're going to use it about yourself and you're in that category, that's fine. But if you're somebody else using it, it is not at all fine.
0: Agreed. Right. Absolutely. Like, don't agreed. call me a
1: drunk, please. Yeah, I know I had like, like a that- woman
0: that was actually reaching out to me to be on a TV show, something. And she, she said she was familiar with my work and then she wrote me back and I said, sure, let we can talk about it. And she wrote me back and said, you're an addict, right? Um, and it was just, and I said, you're not familiar with my work then, number one. Um, <laughs> and but I it would is, never call right. But it's one of these things. It's so interesting. My sister is a teacher. She works in a, she actually works in a, um, juvenile detention center and she has historically worked with kids i think we just talked about this when i was talking about jeff um but she's historically worked with kids that um come from like incredibly impoverished backgrounds um And who have a lot lot of parents that struggle with substances and addiction. And it's so interesting because we want to so quickly. It's a, it is such a, she's, she's so social. She's so like, she's, she's a member of, um, she's a member of surge and she's like an activist and black and white people for black lives. And she's such an activist for her kids. And then, and we've talked about it for years, and it's just like, oh, she's an alcoholic. Oh, she's an addict. Oh, like, well, you know, uh-huh. and like, but also refers to her children, like her some of her kids' parents or has historically referred to some of her kids' parents as, like, well, well, you know, her mom is an addict, and you, like, like, as in uh-huh. that explains everything. Yeah. And so – but it's just this like – it's so – and we had to have a conversation about it. And it wasn't – even to her, somebody that's so sensitive um, and aware of language and labels and stigma, even to her, it was like I just said, please stop calling people addicts. (laughs) Like please stop referring – like explaining people away like that because – If it was Mm -hmm. like, if it's, if it's, you know, if it's like the youth, if it's the kids she's working with, they're going to like, even if they're abusing and or whatever, using drugs, like they're not, they're not within that, but there is this othering of, of people and this like explaining away of what that means. Um, and I agree. I think it needs to be completely, I agree exactly what you say. I think people have the freedom of choice to call themselves whatever they want to call themselves if they struggled with it. But when it comes to how people from, from the outside, or even me, yeah. I don't, I'm not going to refer to anybody as an addict. Like I'm just not, it's yeah. not my yeah. right to yeah. call someone else that.
2: No, um, no, exactly. I mean, yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And it, it's funny. I was at a big meeting of a, uh, well-known sort of lefty organization at one point mm-hmm. and, it was all addict, addict, addict. And at one point I just got up and said something because I was like, you know, you guys are all like totally right on when it comes to race and gender and, um, you know, trans and all of this stuff, but
1: hello, there's another category of
2: us out there that you got to be PC about now, you know, yeah. Um, yeah,
1: I don't even feel like it's PC. I feel no, like it a- I'm
2: teasing here. Um, yeah. So I yeah, know. yeah, yeah, okay, Yeah.
1: but. I- I think that there it could go into that like oh my god we're just all being so oversensitive but literally there's no like someone had that that debate with me about calling themselves a drunk or calling me a drunk and I'm like what about drunk says like it is in any way um positive it's well it's not. knowing who
0: you i mean it's the whole idea of you have to know who you are to be able to like reckon with it like you have to yeah. like you have to own this thing in order to actually like move through it um know what you are right like that is something that like not that that not that doesn't just comes from outside of recovery that comes from within recovery which is admitting yeah. what you are um and i
2: mean i think like you know that that can be a problem um you know like having that as the core of your identity can be a problem. Well, sure. For some people it's fine. Um but you know it is you know like if i say i'm a person with depression or something like that again i don't believe that i automatically understand any other person with depression because i've had depression. Right. Um like i feel Yeah. yeah so it's it's just this business where um you know if you get caught up in that addict identity it can um, kind of hold you back from moving forward. Like I I remember at a certain point um, in, in my recovery, um, my boyfriend at the time was like, you know, whenever you get scared, like you retreat to like using your personal experience and like, you don't have to do that. Like people respect you. You are an expert because you have done a lot of hard work. Um, Mm -hmm. And you know, it was, it was, it was, you know, it was an important and helpful comment. Right. Yeah. I think it's so, it's one of these things that I think is so, and it's,
0: it's going to take, I mean, we're in a very, we're in a, 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 minority, um, the three of us in terms of seeing it this way, it is still largely viewed as something that is an identity, um, you know, versus something that we move through. Um, and I think this is, it's just, it's one of these things that I think is so, I, I think is for people that come into this, I think, somebody new, like coming into this freshly like looking at yeah, facing yeah. their relationship with uh with addiction i think that the choice is like i think it should be it should be so clear that this is a choice not a requirement um to to label the labeling, Yeah, right yeah. no no absolutely because it is such
2: whole- go ahead Oh, I was just going to say, you know, there was, and I mean, I think they're doing this less now, but there was like this whole thing where, you know, in, if you enter treatment and you wouldn't admit and use that language, you were considered in them. denial and right. you'd be confronted and you'd right. be attacked, right. you know, and, and that is especially dangerous to teenagers because we don't, we have no good way of knowing, even if you have a family history and are look seriously messed up as a teenager, we do not know which ones of those are going to just age out. Right. And we shouldn't be putting pressure on them to identify as something when their identity is not fully formed. Um, you know, if they come out and say, this is what I am, that's one thing, but forcing them that is, you know, you can create, you can make a problem worse that
1: way. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I, I think what Holly was saying about it being like knowing what it is that you have or experiencing without any degree of denial is, is, Totally essential, um, but that's Agreed. very different than beating it into your brain that if you forget, you, then you're on the path to hell. If you forget, you're gonna die, and if you, exactly. you don't, if you aren't willing to call yourself an alcoholic first before anything right. else, right. then right. you know, then you're then you're lying to yourself or whatever. Yeah, right. Um, no, I mean, I think like it is definitely in order
2: to solve a problem, you have to realize that you have a problem. Uh, I don't think anybody disputes that. It's just, right, forcing you to identify something as the one true way to solve the problem is the problem. That's right. Um, and and That's people right. who are, um, you know, um, there's the whole school of motivational interviewing and motivational enhancement therapy is the whole point is to not do that, to not label people, to help people find out for themselves What problems they have, whether those problems are associated with substance use, and what to do about it if they are. Yeah, yeah. So, Maya, you
0: said, and I remember reading from your book, you had a very different experience as a as a white woman in the criminal justice system Uh, because you were, I mean, you were you were dealing, correct? Like you were not just using;
2: you were also dealing. No, no, I was I was selling cocaine. Yeah, yeah. I mean. And I still, you know, I mean, I've I've worked really hard the rest of my life to like kind of atone for that. Um, even though, like at the time, I thought, you know, oh, I'm just being a bartender. This is not a problem. Right. Um, you know, the laws are stupid. They'll change eventually, which I still believe. I agree. <laughs> but, I think so too. The uh, the you know it is wrong what I did, and and I really want to you know um, sort of. Uh, sell recovery as much as I sold drugs, I guess. Um, so, but yeah, like I, you know, I I was a Columbia student. You know, I was like Ivy League white middle class. Like that, of course, made a difference. It made a difference in how I looked. It made a difference in people's ability to see that I had the potential to change. Yeah, um, it made a difference yeah. in terms of I had my parents had the resources to pay for treatment um they had the resources to like support me um when i came out of treatment um although i have to say i went to a halfway house and i flew there using a check i had from a, um uh from Oh, no, I flew there on a free ticket that I had from Air Miles from Dealing. And then when I got there, I supported myself.
1: Hey, whatever works. Right,
2: but this is even funnier. I had a check from High Times,
1: <laughs> from my writing for High Times,
2: um, that also
1: should be some extent
2: there. Kate's for the first couple weeks or something. But yes, whatever works, as you say. And, you know, yeah. You know, and I've tried really hard to... Um, emphasize the racial justice piece of this because I recognize how much I benefited from that. And yeah. and sometimes people, like, you know, I don't know, give me crap online because, like, oh, you, like, you benefited from what? I'm supposed to go to jail for 15 years to, like, something make up for somebody Black somehow? Like, that makes no sense. Like, mm, right. um, the thing I can do that's useful is point out how stupid these laws are, how racist they are, and you know that nobody should be serving these sentences, black that's or right. white. That's right.
0: Can you can you explain? Like, I I gave some. I I know the resources, like the new Jim Crow, the Thirteenth by Ava. Um, uh Duvar. Yes. Yeah. Um and uh Chasing the Scream. Um those are like three incredible um resources. Yes. Can you name some other resources? Because I think this is incredibly important. I yes. think people that have been I think I think our white, our audience is mostly is primarily white. Um I think that it's important to understand and to be able to talk about like how this all actually fits together. How the how the yeah. drug how the war on drugs and the and the prison industrial complex and the anti-slavery yeah and all of this actually weaves together and how and 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 the importance also of changing the laws and changing and and like ending the criminalization of addiction and um, yeah, yeah. I'd love to know what some of your favorite resources
2: are for this. Well I mean actually I have to say you've got you've got the good ones right there. Um and you know um I think all of those are are great, and they're the really the best place to start. Perhaps my book, also, but their um, book the, is wonderful as well. Yes, mm-hmm. I agree. Thank you. Sorry, and no, it does. it, it is
0: wonderful and in that. It and you're talks allowed about to this. say that. And you uh, are like, allowed to say um, that.
2: <laughs> uh, thank you. Um, you know, um, I think uh, you know it's it's interesting. I'm thinking that I'm probably going to write a book about the history of palm reduction for my next book um, mm. because. I feel like it, that there isn't a book that exists that tells you that, um, yeah. so I should probably do it. Um, but um, I'm just trying to think of, of you know there certainly are other good um, are people that you think have good voices. Oh yeah, I mean a lot of the doctors that I follow on Twitter are doing great stuff. Um, there's there's a bunch of addiction doctors that are are doing really neat stuff. Um, they're um, Brooke Feldman is a recovery activist who I follow on Twitter and really like. Um, you know, um, and Fletcher's book, Inside Rehab, about the problems with that system is really good. Um, I'm just trying to think of, like, the other stuff that's good on um, the um, racial piece. Do you um, like the drug,
0: poli- the drug Policy Alliance? Like, do you know of some good, like, organizations that are good? I, like, oh, yeah, that's Drug one-
2: Policy Alliance, definitely. Um, And, um, you know, I I think they do really good work. Harm Reduction Coalition. um,
1: I'm just trying to think
2: off the top of my head, who else would be? um, You
1: can also, if you want, because I know it's like hard when you're, when you're put on the spot. spot. If you, uh, we would really love if you, even if you have a list of Twitter handles that people can follow because um, of of these doctors, because I would especially love to have doctors, you know, that you think are have a good voice in this. Um, yeah, yeah, and you know
2: the other thing I'm just realizing. Um, another and and I guess I didn't say this because I partially helped with this. Um, uh, but Carl um, Hart's book High Price mm-hmm. is really good on the on the race um, stuff. It, mm. He's the first black tenured professor in the sciences at Columbia, um, and he grew up um, really poor in Miami in a family that did not look at all likely to produce a um, Ivy League professor, um, and. That book, like, his memoir and his research about, you know, how um, addiction is much yes. more complicated. Um, oh, I love the title. He's great. A neuroscientist. I mean, yeah, yeah, So that, um, that, is, that is good. I just don't want to self-promote too much. No, he's <laughs> oh, oh great. Right. He's somebody also that
0: he's part... I, I want to say, isn't he, like, one of the heads of the Drug Policy Alliance? Or He's he's he's, he's, on, the he's yeah, on the board. Yeah, yeah.
2: No, he's... So, um, yeah. So there there is... Um, and I'm just trying, like... Um, I mean, Cassandra Friedrich at Drug Policy Alliance, who is the New York State Director of Hicks Ass, um, she's great. Um, I'm just trying to, like, it's funny, I was just at a big meeting that DPA had for, um, it was a bunch of academics and me, basically, um, uh, looking (laughs) at, you know, what should the agenda be for drug policy towards reform? Um, and and what research is missing and what research is needed and that that was really fascinating. There were lots of great people there, um, but yes, I'm going to have to think of this for you later because I am not coming up with stuff that I know I should. Oh, well one one actually this is one guy who's there whose book is absolutely critical reading. Um, it's Craig Reinerman, um, and the book is called Crack in America, um, and it tells you a lot about um, you know sort of the way the media was deliberately distorted by politicians, um, in order to, um, uh, mm-hmm. you know, um, and Dan Baum's Smoke and Mirrors is also good. Um, I'm just
1: looking at my bookshelves actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on Amazon right now just adding things to your show.
2: Um, but, um, but yeah, so those, those should be, I mean, it's, it's funny, like with addiction, you really have to read in a cross-disciplinary way that you don't have to do with other That's right. things necessarily Agreed, like, because yeah. you can't, if you just know the neuroscience, you're going to be useless. If you just know the sociology, you won't be quite as useless as if you just know the neuroscience, but, um, you know, you need to know all of these things really to be able to, um, put it together. Mm-hmm. I agree. And
0: I think this is one of the best things. And like, we're, we're coming up on the end of our time. But I think that the last thing I want to talk about, I think it's, I got it from you. It's such a brilliant way of looking at it is, you know, the way that I look at recovery is that it's very much like a, a woman in her 60s with like, you know, 10 doctors or 70s with 10 doctors and like, (laughs) like there's so many different pieces of this. The care has to be managed across disciplines. There is so many, there are so many different components and I think it's so when you, it's so true and I don't know if you said this or not, but when you go, when you walk into, like I went to uh, some forum on neuroscience last, last year in New York and like Nora Valco is there and, and like all of the, like all of the, the scientists that have, have something to do with, with, uh, neuroscience and, and addiction yes. were there. And, and then there is, you know, and then if you walk into, you know, like if, if you talk to somebody that's, um, in like, um, I don't know, um, and a therapist, an addiction therapist. Or if you go, like there's so, if you go to so, like different places, you're going to hear very different ideas. And it's not that they oppose each other. It's that they, they need to come together because it is such a holistic that it is such a like whole person thing. It doesn't just affect the brain. It affects like every single facet of a human's existence. Um,
2: yes, no, that is, um, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, and, and, you know, people like Nora Volka recognize this. Unfortunately, I don't think she's able to like shift funding more to social determinants as much as I think should be shifted to some extent, but, um, the, yeah, um, in order to deal with this, you really have to recognize the whole person. Right. Um, and we don't have a really good way of, you know, recognizing like, gee, if a person's homeless, they are not exactly going to be in the best place they need to be in order to recover, right? That's right. Um, like housing is not medicine, but in this instance, it is, it is. right? It is. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I and I mean there's some doctors that are now like saying that but it's like it's it we need a way of having like basically social services um that are evidence based.
0: Yeah. That's right. Or in more investment we in social about services. Jeff. Yeah, we were just, we had a, we had a, one of our friends, um, Jeff DeFlavio, he runs something called Joint Groups, which is a chain of opiate addiction recovery centers that just pairs Suboxone with, um, with group therapy. Um, like it's, um, the, the, the end goal is sobriety, but obviously it's a harm reduction method. Um, and we were just talking well, about I mean, this. There's say, such like, a, why? like,
2: uh, why is the end goal, uh, why is the end goal, like, abstinence? Like, why should that be if the drug is working for them?
0: I don't know. That's not what I was bringing it yeah. up <laughs> about, though, <that>. um, <laughs> <laughs> at all. Never mind. <laughs> we <laughs> could go down uh, that no. line. <laughs> no. Um. I mean, I think, like, I think, like, the idea is not having to take a drug for the rest of your life is probably something most people want. That would be my guess. But the, yeah. the book right, I'm
2: talking kind about of dying is...
0: <laughs> right that's why harm reduction is an intervention right like it's 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 meeting people where they're at and working with people i don't think it's an awful thing to have at the end goal to get people like not using a prescription drug for the rest of their life um but the the point I was trying to make is we were just talking about this in the United States. Like the, I don't know if you've read the American Healthcare Paradox or, or followed any of the work of those two women. They're both journalists, but there's there's such a um, there's such a, a uh, we we underinvest in the social supports in our country and and, oh, and overinvest true. in the medicalization and it ends up I mean it ends up in, in what we have, which is not taking care of people and leaving them to the you know leaving them to like the emergency rooms and 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 no no um,
2: I. I- The only reason I push back on the medication issue is because I think a person who is on Suboxone and is stable and doing well is just as much in recovery and just as much in sobriety as somebody who is not. And I think it is is stigmatizing to um, suggest otherwise. Um, If people want to come off because it is a pain in the butt to be on a prescription long-term, that's absolutely a perfectly fine goal. But I don't want people coming off because they think it's I'm not really in recovery Um, Because that has killed a lot of
0: people I agree and I think this is uh, that's an important Piece to like point out I don't say it because I think that sobriety is the only thing that counts And I think sobriety is just like like a Great example is a woman asked me the other day She still smoked pot she stopped drinking and she Wanted to know if she could call herself sober and I was Like call yourself whatever the fuck you want I mean there is there is (laughs) like and of course You are like whatever like I used I Called myself sober while I was quitting drinking and I was Still doing a whole bunch of other things I think that there is I think the Idea is that I like the two things, the two ideals I try and hold at the same time. And I think this is important to understand because we can have such contradictory ideas um, held at the same time, which is one, We, we as a society, like, are, are, we put band aids on everything. And I think we should be able to encourage people, like, to live lives free of having to take medication and free of Mm -hmm. having to, um, to use things, like, to, that take, like, to escape through different means. Like, I just think, like, that is when you trace it back through any, old historical like philosophy philosophical or whatever text the idea is helping people find themselves like helping people like the the goal i believe of, of our human destiny is to come here to meet our challenges to find ourselves and to find out who we are i think that is like such an important thing and that no, every no. human I mean, being I'm is capable say, of that i know wait hold on let me finish what? this thought let me finish this thought be on something. (laughs) Let me finish my thought, though. I'm saying I think that we have to hold that hope for every single person and also give people the benefit of the doubt that they can achieve whatever they want to achieve. And so when I talk about this, I speak about this in a way of just finding freedom. And freedom to me is 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 not is is like this continuing to be able to be with myself like that to me is freedom is being able to be with myself without using other things. I don't think that that's for me. And that is also like I think one of the like tenets like one of the one of the purposes of our life is to break through shit the other part of this is also it like there is no there is no gold standard for how people move through what they move through there is no right there is no black and white there is no perfect um and that's a thing that we use to beat people up with and so i agree with what you're saying on the idea that like somebody isn't like like the insinuation that because somebody is taking a maintenance medication or methadone or suboxone or whatever that they aren't sober and i don't agree agree with that statement at all. I think like everybody has, um, you know, equal footing when it, when it comes to, um, you know, where they're at and what they, I don't think anybody gets to take that away from somebody with a word. Um, but I just, I wanted to kind of point that because those are two very true things for me. I believe that we're here to do this one thing. And I also believe that however we do it and in whatever way we do or don't do it is up to us individually.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I just like I just sort of disagree with the drug free ideal um, because I feel that, um, you know, we use the tools that are available to us in in the situation that we have. And in my nervous system, without Prozac, I am not good. Um, And I don't want to like spend months and months of depression um, in order to learn this again. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Uh, yeah. I mean, so, I'm
1: on, I'm on medication too and have yeah. it for eight years. Yeah, so I, I don't, I, I think that's, I think you're both, we're both actually saying a lot of the same thing Are yep. you two. Are both yes, I think so too. And I mean, I I, agree.
2: I, I'm always a little bit um, strong about this because I know that people feel bad about themselves and they feel like they, they need to haven't do done, done as much as they could right. because like, Oh, like, you know um and and to me the goal is to be as fully functional as you can as a person and as open and connected and as loving as you can be as a person more than anything i care about in terms of like chemicals I agree. um and
1: and and so you know again i would add yeah i would add presence into there and i think whatever allows you to be present really yes, present exactly. No. And mm. I think, I think you
2: know, I, I think that's right. Um, you know, um, and it's what's what's hard for people to understand about that sometimes I feel is that like they think that, oh, you're on a drug, so you're automatically less present.
0: Right. Um, whereas
2: if yeah. I was not on this drug, I would be much less present because I would be completely distracted by, you know, my sensory um, experiences. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: and other things and anxiety that, and depression consumed with it. Yeah. yeah. It's Yeah. So no, it's just, you know, it's it's different and it I you know,
2: I respect people who their ideal for themselves is like, you know, I, I don't want to do that. But I also feel like we should respect all paths.
0: Yep. I agree. And I, in, in no way do I disagree with anything that you just said. And I, I, it comes down to, I think that we all get to make, uh, we all, at the end of the day, we all have to have one person that we answer to, and that's ourselves. Um, and not anybody else on this path. And I think that it's incredibly important to understand that, that just because, um, I don't even know how to say it, but like, I, yeah, it's, i there's no question in my mind and we actually we had kelly brogan on i'm sure you're familiar with her work um and it did turn out turn into this idea that there's something um that everyone you know should be off of there's no instances where people should be taking um uh medication medication yeah of any kind right um which is crazy talk um so anyway but i i agree i think there's a fine line between explaining um no, I'm gonna just shut up. Yeah. I agree yeah. with everything you just said. <laughs> I agree. And no woman like no woman or man should ever feel less because of what choices they make for themselves to have a manageable know, and exactly. happy and life. It's like
2: really, like yeah. you know, this is another form of, you know, prejudice. Like we're prejudiced against you because you have a chemical in your blood. Like, no, that's not okay. Right. Like if you if that's what works for you, that's what works for you. Right. Um, you know, and and you know, it, it's like I I think, you know, obviously everybody should try to be their highest version of themselves. Right. Um, but that what that will look like is going to look very different for different people.
1: That's right. Mm-hmm. I agree. Oh, thank you so much for coming on. <laughs> I want. I So good. More. I know I this, too. But, yeah. No, but I know. A great conversation. Thank them. you for having me. It's no, no I loved have- it. I have-
0: I know. Yes. Well, I think I just I think we could talk. I, you know, I'd love to like keep on um, keep in touch. Yeah, sure. I, I really I love yes. your work, and it's so thought provoking and provoking. It's really provoking. You know, like um, <laughs> well, and
2: I, I apologize for that. Sometimes <laughs> I do push. Um, uh, well, so do know, I. Right? But I <laughs> I want to make people think, and it's fine to disagree. Yeah, um, it
0: is. It is. Know, um, No, but I, I mean, this is why I think it's just amazing. And Laura and I do this with, with, I mean, this is why we have this. Like, and this is, I think this is, like, it's, this is a forum to talk about things in different ways. And, and, you know, like, at the end of the day, I'm walking away from, from this with, um, you know, still with like, with some, you know, like I, I love the fact that I can disagree so much with some of your work and also agree so much with it. And I think that that's one yes. of the most beautiful parts of this, that we have to understand when we're exploring this, which is that yes. every, like, this is what we get. This is what we get when we look at anybody's work. Um, and that we lose yes. so much when we write somebody off because of one piece that we disagree, um, that we disagree no, no I mean, like I, yeah. you know,
2: yeah, I think that's, I think that's really wise. And it, you know, I mean, I've certainly done that prematurely and and regretted it. <laughs> Um, <laughs>
1: yeah, you're not the only
2: one, <laughs> you know, um, but it's, it's and I mean, I also think it really is just in general a good, uh, not necessarily in this political climate, but it is in general good to read smart versions of arguments you disagree with. Um, uh, yes. because, um, you know, you learn something. You also learn how to make a better argument against it if that's what you're <laughs> all <doing>. about. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Well, you're just, you're lovely
0: and everybody should read your book, Unbroken Brain. It is, Are you, and I would love, oh my God, I would just love it if you wrote another book, especially on yes, on, on race and recovery. Um, I think it's so, like there, is so, there are so few resources on it. There really are. Even though there are many, there, there's not enough. There's just not enough. There's
1: definitely not very many women. uh, There aren't very many female voices that I've found in this. Um,
2: No, it's interesting, but I have to say, like with all the sex scandals that have been horribly happening lately, I've been relatively happily surprised by the drugs field not being filled with horrible um, harassers, at uh, least that I know. And it's it's a little surprising, like um, because like it is really male dominated.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um,
2: but it's also like, I've noticed on Twitter, like I, as you may have seen, I have plenty of Twitter fights with people all the time. And sometimes <laughs> people are a little bit jerky, but I don't get like these horrible, you know, rape and death threats that yeah. women I know have like, um, gotten in other areas when they participate. Yeah, that's right. It. So, gay for us drug people in some yeah. way. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. I agree. I think. Isn't that weird though? I yeah. mean, I think like also like one of, one of the things that I actually think is a very positive value of drug culture is that if you're a kid who's left out, if you want to fit in somewhere, you can do drugs and join the drug culture and we'll have you. Now That's that true. is not good, but it is a sad commentary on the fact of the unacceptingness of the non-drug culture. <laughs> yeah. No, I yeah.
1: Agree. yeah. Um, well On that note, yes. Yeah. <laughs> 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 so you so hear that, I said, kids? Least, like
2: <laughs> it just sort of occurred to me, and, I, and I, I really am. I'm happily surprised, you know. And I'm sure there are some horrible thrusters somewhere in this field, um, but um, it, it has been less so than in some of the other fields, like journalism, that I'm in.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Well thank you, Maya. I look forward to keeping in touch with you. Thank you for coming on and, and for debating so delightfully. <laughs>
2: thank you too. And, and please um uh you know send me the link when uh when it posts and I'll I'll tweet it and stuff.
0: Awesome, absolutely. Cool.
2: Um, have
0: a good one. You too, Thanks, thank you, Maya. Bye bye. All right,
2: take care. Okay, bye now. Bye.